I wanna go where the moon shines bright. I wanna Welcome everyone to another episode of the It Matters to Me podcast, a show dedicated to the people who pursue a craft, skill, or simply a life's passion for no reason other than the fact that it brings them true happiness. I'm your host, Adam Casey, and in this episode, I sit down with Matt Blank, someone I've honestly been wanting to talk to for almost five years now. From his upbringing in Southern California and earning a degree in psychology from UC Irvine, Matt explains his path to becoming a professional athlete in both rock climbing and base jumping, allowing him to travel the world. There's a lot more that goes into base jumping than just making a crazy GoPro video, and Matt dispels some of those misconceptions about base jumping, as well as explaining how he continues to refine his skill in the sport. Matt also opens up about his experience watching his best friend die during a base jump in Turkey, and the journey he went through afterwards to celebrate that life, which became the centerpiece of the 2016 award-winning documentary, when we were knights. This one gets a little deep, and some of Matt's stories are sure to have your heart racing. So buckle up and let's get to my talk with Matt. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the It Matters to Me podcast. And my guest today is Matt Blank. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, so, Matt, before we get into why you're here and what originally attracted me to you, I'd like to give listeners a little bit of a background for, for each guest. And one of those ways that I'm able to give that background is asking about their childhood and how they grew up. So, you know, you're, you're a professional skydiver, you're a base jumper. We're going to get into that and so much more. But I was wondering if you could tell me what it would be like to be your friend growing up. Ooh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, we would have uh, gotten into a lot of trouble. Uh, probably skipped a fair amount of school. Uh, let's see. Probably would have uh, been uh, doing a lot of, you know, small little stunts around the neighborhood, riding our BMX bikes, building jumps. And surfing, uh, chasing down the ice cream man. That's that's pretty much how my childhood went. It was rambunctious. <laughs> no, no, it, it's uh, not surprising because, again, what we'll get into later, I think there's going to be a, a pretty strong thread between your childhood and, and what you do now professionally as an adult. Um, but surfing, so you're from California, right? And you're you currently live in California. That's right. Yeah, I was born and raised in Costa Mesa, and uh, now I live in Oceanside. Okay. And so what kind of, I guess, what's the adventure-seeking kind of cliche that everyone assumes about Californians? Ooh, I don't, I don't know. That everyone's kind of a surf bum, I guess. And would you qualify yourself as a surf bum these days? No, I never got into surf bumming. I got into climb bumming though. I, I was a rock climbing bum for a, a pretty while, like pretty long time, uh, traveling around in you know, beater trucks and uh, eating tuna fish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner just to get the climbs in. Uh, I I lived and worked in a climbing gym <laughs> for several years. Uh, we had an attached space that was used to be offices that a group of us turned into 
you know, uh, housing. So we had kind of a, you know, ramshackle apartment building attached to a climbing gym. That was pretty sweet. Uh, so never got into surf bumming, but climb bumming for sure. What, uh, what got you into podcasting in the first place? What, um, what do you like about podcasts as like a medium? You know, I'm reminded of this other podcast. It's like a meta answer. Um, it's called Beautiful Stories by Anonymous People. And the host, uh, Chris Gethard, he's a comedian. And the premise of this show is that he basically like will tweet out this you know, this phone number to the studio that he's in and to all his followers and it's live, like in the moment. And the first person to call in, um, basically that gets through, he talks to for an hour, like uninter uninterrupted. And, you know, it's, it stays anonymous. Like there's no identifying information about the person. They don't say their name. And if they accidentally do, they bleep it out. But the whole point is just to have this like random conversation with a stranger and they talk about whatever the caller wants. And I think I really just appreciated it, at least in the first couple of seasons, just how authentic the conversations he was having were. And also noticing just how great of a conversationalist he was. And so for me, I've always seen there's that there's this overlap between different areas of our life. Like I, I myself want to be a better conversationalist and the best way to do that is to get reps at it, so to speak. And so the overlap is like in a sport, you get better at something by practicing it. And the best way to practice having to better, having better conversations is to have more conversations. And so podcasting in one way opens up that medium for me to be able to talk to people, you know, and that's, but that's only a fraction of the percentage. I think other part of it is also, you know, I like to think there are some really cool people that I am very, very, very fortunate to know. And I want to share their stories and, you know, you, you're one of them now, you know, and, you know, I've always, you know, specifically to you, it was a way for me to, you know, I, I don't know what your response would have been had I just emailed you to say, hey, Matt, I'm just a random dude who wants to have a conversation. Can we just talk on the phone sometime? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, tackling that one first, I could say that that would definitely have worked. You know, uh, that's a pretty standard thing to happen at Burning Man, which I frequent. Somebody will just randomly come up to you and be like, hey, man, let's have a random conversation. I'm like, all right, cool. I don't know you. We don't need to exchange pleasantries or names. Let's get going. What do you want to talk about? Well, so let's, so from chasing the ice cream man to being a climb bum, you somehow have inserted a degree in psychology from UC Irvine. Uh, what originally attracted you to psychology? It was easy. <laughs> uh, I kind of understood people already and of all the curriculums that I looked over that one just intuitively made sense and I've always loved people and it's you know a study of people so uh, really I got into it because it's easy um, but 
I think it, it was easy because I enjoy it. So that's what attracted me to it. And is, does that still play a role in your professional life today? Well, psychology? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would say that it plays a role in everybody's life. You know, if you look at physics, for instance, uh, we're not so much looking at the, the numbers. We're looking at how people perceive the numbers. We're looking at our perceptions of the known universe. You know, and if, even if you're in business, you know, that's not so much about the math as it is people engaging with the math and the numbers. And so psychology plays a role in, I think, everybody's life. And uh, certainly it plays a role in my life as an extreme, extreme sports athlete because uh, half of the equation is how we can perform optimally in these extremely dangerous situations. And psychology is a necessary practice and you know, a necessary um, uh, pursuit to be effective. So you, you identify as an extreme athlete and you are, you're a professional extreme athlete. At what point did you make that transition from, you know, a psychology student to being an extreme athlete? Oh, that was a slow transition. I was uh, a professional climber and snowboarder through, um, my, uh, my college years. And so, um, that was, you know, extreme sports as our society would, you know, label them. Uh, so I think I, I've been involved in extreme sports since I was a kid, just never stopped. And I, along the way, um, saw that it would be beneficial to just have a degree at some point so that if this, if this whole climbing rocks for a living didn't pan out, I could go get a job somewhere. And there's such a relationship between skydivers and base jumpers and saying rock climbers and to to some extent snowboarders. I know when I first got my A license in skydiving uh, out in California, I uh, became enamored with my instructor who <laughs> regaled me with these stories of how they uh, spent their summers as a skydive instructor and winters as a snowboard instructor in Vail here in Colorado. And it just was I, I still to this day just want was ho- am hoping that somehow I can marry the two uh, passions in my life of running and skydiving um, in some way. But I know that that's probably a far cry. So, what would you say is the major difference between base jumping and skydiving? Well, skydiving is done from aircraft, and base jumping is done from fixed objects, cliffs, buildings, bridges, and so uh, practically speaking. Uh, skydiving has a lot more space available to the parachutist. You know, we're jumping from 12,500 feet usually. That's you know close to two miles of airspace in order to operate. Whereas base jumping usually exists within the 200 to 1,000 foot range, and so there's just a lot less time. And what is and so base stands? You know, um, base stands for uh, buildings, antenna, satellite, and earth. Um, out of those four, which are your favorites to jump from? Okay. And uh, just to clarify real fast, the S is span. Uh, no worries. Uh, so like anything that spans two objects, like a bridge, um, would be the S ac- uh, piece of the acronym. And I don't have a, a favorite. Um, they all have amazing qualities to them, though I think I jump antennas least of all because of the radiation. 
Uh, but uh, man, there have been some epic buildings that we've jumped off of. Uh, let's see, one that comes to mind is uh, the Ritz Carlton in downtown LA, uh, epic jump uh, that we did, uh, I don't know, maybe close to eight years ago now. Uh, the Staples Center was getting out at the time, <laughs> hundreds of people on the street, uh, jumping into downtown LA, security everywhere, chasing us through the streets. It was it was pretty heist like. <laughs> uh, Earth, I think, would probably be. I think bridge uh, buildings and Earth would be my two favorite. Why? Why? I mean, beyond the radiation, and it's it's fun. It's almost ironic to it's almost <laughs> ironic to think that a base jumper is afraid of the radiation, <laughs> like the the fatality of radiation, as opposed to jumping off something that's only a couple hundred feet. But is there anything about jumping from you know a piece of earth that is just I don't know? It just it feels like primal just to say it. There's just so many epic locations when it comes to earth that wouldn't normally be open to somebody you know the earth jumps are grand uh they allow for a human being to exist in a space potentially where no other human being has ever existed before you know in that rare piece of air that you know is below this epic cliff line um plus just being in the in nature is I I feel very grounding and very um uh, very peaceful, very harmonious. You know, being able to do this, you know, hike into the wilderness and bring your equipment with you and then fly home once you get to the top of this peak, you know, that's uh very peaceful. Do you remember your first uh base jump because I know for me I'm so thankful that my first at least skydive was in Booney, Missouri, because I don't remember anything from it other than the drive out there in the drive back. Where did, where was your first uh, base jump? Uh, my first base jump was in Twin Falls, Idaho, off of the uh, Perrine Bridge, which, as you know, is one of the most common places to base jump because it's legal year round to go and jump there. Uh, so it's where most people go and uh, train to base jump. And uh, my first base jump was in, I think, either January or February. Uh, and uh, it was snowing. <laughs> I had I had tried to convince my climbing partner, Ian Flanders, to just skip the coursework, grab two base rigs, go out to the bridge and figure it out ourselves. And uh, he convinced me that that was a bad idea. So our first base jumps were done with uh, two excellent instructors, uh, Jimmy and Marta, who are still teaching today. Uh, and uh, it was it was fantastic. It was snow covered hills, snowing at the time, cold as heck, um, but great time. Well, what was it like standing on the edge of the bridge for that first jump though? What What's going through your mind or what's going through your, is there anything going through your head that first time? Oh yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, terrifying to the point where uh, my body went through like a complete almost shutdown. Um, there is a palpable <laughs> feeling where your body will not allow you to step any farther 
because of, I, I think, probably evolutionary psychology. You know, your body is trying to get you to maintain itself. And when it feels that it's in harm's way, it, you know, physically uh, inhibits you from moving forward. And so climbing over that railing the first time uh, was paralyzing in nature. And being able to, or forcing myself to break through that paralysis uh, was a matter of just conscious thought of trying to go back through all the reasons why my body would be um, fighting me on this decision and trying to logically uh, bring it around to saying that this was going to be okay. You know, I had a parachute on my back that I knew how to use. The conditions were acceptable for it. Um, and even with all of that logic, there's still uh, you know, a, a moment where you have to break through your body's resistance and just go for it. And how do you separate the two, those two, those two, I guess, like dichotomies of, you know, confidence in yourself, confidence in the fact that you packed your own, you know, you jump, you're jumping your own pack job, um, that you have the, the right gear, that you have the right training versus like that, that innate gut feeling that you kind of, I feel like precedes every doom and gloom story when it comes to, you know, maybe I shouldn't have tried to summit that, you know, I shouldn't have tried to summit Everest before the winter storm came in kind of story. Yeah. How do you separate irrational versus rational fear? It's a great question. Um, with logic is the simple answer. Uh, and uh, so when your body, when my body feels, uh, you know, irrational fear or rational fear, I try and ask myself why. And then I just continually ask myself why, 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 until I get to the root cause of whatever that fear is. And if it's something that is reasonable, then I just don't do the thing that I'm about to do. And if it's irrational and I can have like multiple points of information that back that irrationality up. Uh, then I go for it. And that's why it's really helpful to have more experienced people with you when you start out base jumping, because there's going to be a ton of fear and it's going to be really hard to separate between rational and irrational. And once you go through that logical progression of asking yourself why and getting to the root cause analysis, presenting that to somebody that's more experienced for them to sign off on is really helpful. And have have you had have you had those moments where you've relied on somebody more experienced to tell you that, Hey, this is all good. Like, don't worry about it. Definitely not. So that, there's a slight difference in lending and borrowing confidence and validating somebody's own opinion. So in base jumping, there's a solid rule that I like to live by and it's, it's don't lend or borrow confidence. You know, confidence should come from the person that's jumping because there's too much that can go wrong. Uh, for you to borrow it. And so if I'm an instructor on the side, I'm definitely not going to tell somebody you got this. Uh, if I'm a jumper, I'm not going to ask anybody, hey, do you think I got this? What I will do, though, is say like, hey, man, like I'm feeling a little bit apprehensive about this. Here's what I'm thinking. Uh, here's where I think that fear is coming from. Um, what do you think about my conclusion? And then they'll have the opportunity to validate it based on objective points and say, yeah, I think you're right about that. That doesn't seem right. Or, uh, yes, everything that you've done so far, I would also do. Um, you might want to file that fear in another category. 
And I guess, you know, speaking of things going wrong, um, one of the ways that I came across you was you were featured in 2016 in a documentary, a beautiful documentary by um, Anson Fogel that uh, called When We Were Knights. Um, could you, why don't you tell me a little bit about that? So When We Were Knights is a documentary that a friend of mine named Anson Fogel put together uh, after our mutual friend Ian Flanders died, who was my climbing partner for a decade plus, and then my base jumping partner for my entire career uh, up until his death. And uh, it uh, went back through our life of base jumping together in short form. It was something that uh, Anson wanted to do in memoriam of uh, Ian, and uh, I was super thankful and glad that he did do that because uh, I was looking for something to share with the world about a person that I think, you know, could have had a couple more years at least to uh, share his love and stoke with the world. And, you know, like you alluded to, Ian died in that, in that uh, documentary. Um, and something that is a focal point of that documentary is how he died basically in front of you. Um, what was that like? Well, that's a pretty broad question. <laughs> uh, I mean, in total, it was the most horrific experience that I've ever gone through. Um, what was it like in the moment? It was present extremely present <laughs> nothing else was going on except for that um maybe you can expand on the question a little bit more i can delve into it what do you really want to know i want to know that initial reaction i want to know um talking again about how you know the the gut react or your your gut telling you not to do something versus the logic it do you does that now come into play when you need to make that decision? No, uh, it doesn't come into play more when I um, make that decision. What it does do is it shifted my value of life. And uh, this is really easy to explain. Prior to Ian dying, it's very easy to justify burning the candles at both ends to live this full and amazing life. You know, we're on the razor edge. We're living extreme. You know, this is, this is where life happens. Um, now, post Ian's death, I have the advantage of seeing all of the things that he left behind that he was not able to experience at all. And so uh, I can value life a little differently. Um, seeing all of the things that he missed out on that he unequivocally would have enjoyed more than any of number of the base jumps that we did. Now, uh, going back to your earlier question, um, how did it affect me? Really, the only way that it affected me is that I don't have uh, that person's physical presence in my life. That's it. Well, one of the great, I guess ways that you were able to, and, and for lack of a better word, say goodbye, um, even though you did say goodbye to Ian um, before he jumped, 
but uh, you had this more ceremonious way of saying goodbye in that documentary. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to get the story wrong, but I know that there's a Folgers can involved and there's quite an epic road trip across the country uh, with that Folgers can. So could you, how did, how did you treat Ian? How did you celebrate Ian's life after he died? Yeah. Um, so we celebrated Ian's life uh, by partying with him <laughs> and bringing him around to all the friends that uh, loved him, that he loved to party with them. And uh, much like, uh, you know, the f- favorite movie of ours, um, you know, The Big Lebowski, uh, we put him in a, a Folgers coffee can, his ashes in a Folgers coffee can and traveled around the country to see all the people that he loved. And we did that mainly because all of those people just didn't have the resources being, you know, bums and dirt bags uh, to travel across the country to come to a memorial. And so the only way to reach all of them was to uh, take him on the road and uh, give them some closure by allowing them to party with him like we would party for him uh, at the memorial. Along the way, we got to see a bunch of cool stuff and take a bunch of pictures with, you know, Ian's ashes in this uh, coffee can. And at the end of the road, we um, got into a group and released them into the wild. And is there any particular part of that, um, I guess, celebration that you that you kind of like cherish more than any others? Was there any, you know, just before you released his ashes kind of moment or, you know, just this the other, you know, experience going through that where you're like, damn, you know, Ian's looking down at me from above. Oh, for sure. I mean, he was, he was with us the whole time on that journey and uh, the release of the ashes without giving away too much, because if I did, I might, uh, I might get, I might get uh, caught up with the park service because what we did wasn't strictly speaking legal. <laughs> but uh, where we decided to release his ashes was also the first wingsuit base jump that he and I had done together. And uh, we returned to that spot with a group of his close friends and did a wingsuit base jump, uh, releasing his ashes at the end of that jump. And that was a very connected moment. When I watched your documentary um, and that thank you note, idea that or that you the thank you note that starts off that documentary gave me an idea um, because right around that time I had been diagnosed with cancer and I went through chemo and was on coming on the other side of having cancer and I couldn't have been more angry at the world um you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot to that story to unpack, but I was really in a dark place and seeing your story and kind of questioning like, well, why the fuck doesn't he hate the world as much as I think he deserves? Like he just lost his best fucking friend. And that thank you note idea, um, what I started to do legitimately because of that was every week for over a year, um, every Monday, I had a reminder on my phone and I would write a thank you note to the people, you know, to people in my life. Um, And it was, 
people that were there for me when I was sick, people that I haven't talked to in a while, I mean, ex-girlfriends, um, everyone um, that I felt like played a big role in that I could basically track down, I wrote just really short letters to. What about the outlook of that piece uh, resonated with you most? Like why, um, what, was the, what was the aspect that you were, wanting to question me about, I guess, is, uh, is what, uh, I'd like to know. You know, there's not, there's not one specific thing. I, you know, uh, overall, again, it was just like the endearing positive attitude that you have. And I get it. Like, you know, that, that documentary was 11 minutes long. It's not going to encapsulate that whole experience that you went through. Um, but it was also just appreciating, you know, there was no what ifs that you had played with your own mind about that day and about that event. And for me, you know, to get to where I'm at now, emotionally, I, ha I, I went through those what ifs and I'm thankfully not playing that scenario out in my head of like, what if I, you know, what if I hadn't gotten cancer? What if I had, you know, stayed in the military? What if I had, you know, all the, all the what ifs. And so, you know, it was just, it was maybe just seeing you go through your own traumatic experience. And I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but, but to see you go through something like that and not question maybe why it happened. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. Um, I did get into a lot of what if situations, uh, mostly, uh, What's the word for it? Mostly intellectually rather than uh, emotionally, but certainly there were some. You want to hear a, a really interesting one as related to, or a really interesting one about um, Ian's uh, accident? Okay, so uh, earlier that day, we did arguably the most ba dangerous base jump that I've ever been a part of. Like, full stop, period most dangerous and uh what it was was uh, a wingsuit base jump in uh, the mountains of turkey uh, in a place called kamalia and what we were like kind of asked to do was to open up the first wingsuit base exit there it was part of a uh, a north face um, outdoor recreation event you know where all these pros came to mountain bike and rock climb and base jump and they wanted to be um, you know, on the map doing something that was like groundbreaking. So we say yes to this, uh, this jump that was explained to us as uh, a lot less dangerous than it turned out to be. Let's say that <laughs> like initially it was like, oh yeah, no problem. We can definitely do that. You know, the, the numbers make sense, the, um, you know, point of exit to point of impact, the glide ratio, the surrounding topography, the landing area, like it all sounded great. Uh, then when we got there, each one of those elements started to look a little worse. Now, it wasn't 600 feet to impact. It was more like, you know, 300 and change. You know, it was, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, 1.5 to one to the landing zone. It was more like a 2.5 to one. You know, uh, the area that we were supposed to land in wasn't, uh, just an open field that had like power lines and building obstructions and, 
you know, so like the better landing area ended up being uh, the Euphrates River, which was moving at 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so like there are these cascading series of like uh, things that made this way more dangerous than we thought it was going to be. Domino effect, you know, but uh, we like crossed off each one of those one at a time. So we never really reevaluated the entire jump as a whole which was definitely like a psychological human error problem that we ran into. Just like, okay, as long as this one thing is the only thing that's different, then we still got this. Right? And it turns out that we did that like six times in a row <laughs> without looking back at the whole piece going like, okay, let's reevaluate this thing in total. Uh, fast forward. There were three of us who were experienced trying to do the wingsuit jump. Myself, uh, a guy named Scotty Bob and my partner Ian Flanders. Uh, Scotty Bob, out of the three of us, was by far the most experienced. Um, then, last minute, there was a fourth jumper that the production wanted to add into the mix, and it was a very out of shape Turkish wingsuiter who no one knew. And so we kind of looked at that going like, what do we do here? Like, how do we, how do we tell this person not only no, but also please don't attempt this because you're going to die. Like it was, it was that obvious, you know, it's like the physics would not allow this person to live doing this jump. Like, the, <laughs> sorry to say like the wingsuit that they were flying and the weight that they were, like I, I could easily crunch the numbers in my head and say that there was just 0% chance that they were gonna end up flying away from that cliff. So there's a, a bit of back and forth and uh, none of us are in charge of the production or in control of the area. I mean, like we've got no authority, we're in Turkey and we're being shepherded around by armed guards all the time because we're 20 miles away from the Syrian border. And this was at the time where um, there was month, like massive terrorist uh, activity, like literally 20 miles from us. So we didn't have a whole lot of authority over uh, the space and who did what, but we did like present the argument to this person and to the production, like, yo, you guys should not let this person do this. The production didn't really uh, end up um, taking our advice per se, uh, and uh, this person the morning of ended up uh, with us going like, oh, hey, we're going to, I'm going to do this with you. And so the next thing that we decided to do was like, okay, well, he's never going to be able to find this exit without us. And we'll just say, okay, look, the production says that we need to be up there by sunrise to get the shot, right? So let's stall here for a little bit, wait until like the time that we have to get to the peak of this is only like an hour and a half. And then let's book. Let's just outrun this guy to the top. You know, he's going to definitely turn back because there's like, he's not going to be able to find the exit by himself. And it'll be so strenuous that there's no way he'll be able to keep up with us. So we do that. We end up uh, executing this jump near flawlessly, which was such a weight off of all of our shoulders. Um, and uh, also complete irony that uh, the next jump that Ian does was arguably the easiest and the one that he goes in on. But back to the point at hand, 
the person, uh, the Turkish wingsuiter doesn't get to the top with us. So uh, he doesn't jump at all. Fast forward three months later, he's at Brento. After Scotty Bob has told him, look, man, please do not jump Brento. Like if you do that, you will die. What happens? He jumps Brento and he dies. Yep. And here's the big what if out of this whole situation. Our actions in that one moment bought him three months of added life. Now, if we had done nothing there and just let him jump with us, and I can tell you, he would have unequivocally died. The entire event would be shut down, no one would have jumped, and Ian wouldn't have even had the opportunity to do that next jump. He would have unequivocally survived. And I can tell you this much, he definitely would have survived for three months later. We wouldn't have been doing anything at that point, and we surely, certainly wouldn't be doing anything that was uh, life-threatening. Yeah, that's that's a little seedling that will that'll keep you up at night. Uh, um, have you already? I mean, short of dying yourself, is there anything that would make you not base base jump anymore? Yeah, you you got touched on this one uh, the last time we were speaking, and uh, it strikes me as an interesting question because so many people ask it. They uh, look at something bad that happens in the sport um, or something that's tragic that happens, and they say, how can you continue doing that? And that's pretty much what you're asking me here, right? No, because I, I get why you, you still want to do it. It's just... What's the threshold for you to say, okay, enough's enough? I, I don't know. I think uh, I'll know that when it happens, right? All of this is very emotionally based. Like, I don't base jump because uh, it makes sense logically. I base jump sometimes because it just feels good to do it, you know, or because uh, my soul is naturally drawn to it. And I don't know what the event that would occur that would uh, tell me like not to base jump, but I mean, to put it in simpler terms, I quit base jumping every time I base jump. And then when I'm drawn to do it, I do it again. Like I'm not already on the base jumping path thinking about when I'm going to quit. I'm quitting every single time thinking, when will I be so moved to go do it again that I'll pick up the rig? And how, how active of a climber are you these days? Not very. I haven't been very active in climbing since Ian passed away, to be honest. It's, it's tough to find a good climbing partner. And once you've grown accustomed to a climbing partner that intuitively understands you, it's hard to go back and invest again in somebody else. And that's what, you know, is one of, one of the most beautiful themes of that documentary is that relationship that you and Ian had. How did you guys even meet in the first place? We met at a Southern California climbing gym, Rock Creation, uh, Costa Mesa. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, we just met in the bouldering gym or bouldering section. You know, that's kind of the social piece of the gym and got to chatting. And I was like, hey, man, I'm thinking about going skydiving. And he's like, great, let's go Friday. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're in. <laughs> let's do this. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's it, I I myself, you know, I have a a friend that I that I liked to jump with, um, you know, he's a former Marine like me and everything. So there's just that bond, and it's just it's it's hard to replace. And uh, you know, I, I so I, I I feel like you know I kind of understand a little bit about that relationship loss. Going back to kind of your training in the first place, was there anything in particular about your training, you know, when you went through that course in Idaho that you, that you struggled with or that, is there anything in, that you've found? Cause you're an instructor and, uh, is there anything in that most people come to you wanting instruction struggle with? I think, well, first the question is what did I struggle with? And I struggle with packing the most, um, Packing a, a base canopy initially was quite difficult um, because all the small little processes, you know, I, I was I was a perfectionist, and uh, since you know learning to base jump, I realized that I don't need to be as meticulous as I thought. However, initially starting out, it would take me an hour and a half to pack in the parachute, and uh, I think a lot of people struggle with that initially. Um, certainly, I've spent the most amount of time teaching people. Uh, packing versus any of the other competencies, um, probably because it's not something that's covered very uh, completely in skydiving. Not a whole lot of uh, effort is put into understanding the equipment and the, the components of the equipment, you know, how it's all made and put together. And understanding that makes packing it much easier. It becomes just this logical move problem. Whereas uh, when you don't understand you know, how your lines are designed and how your canopy is designed, then you have to memorize each individual step and there are hundreds of them. So, you know, getting that right is, is pretty difficult. And how much planning goes into um, any, any base jump that you do? I mean, is it clearly it's not as, as, <laughs> as romantic as someone inviting you, Hey, Friday, we're going base jumping every single time. And you just show up and go there. But yeah, what's the, what's the kind of planning process like? It depends on the individual jump. Some jumps, there's not much planning at all other than checking the, the wind. Uh, you know, some jumps uh, that are more well-known, like the bridge, um, that you've done hundreds of times, perhaps. Uh, just walk out there, look at the wind, go jump it. Um, other jumps, uh, like, for instance, opening a new wingsuit jump, would require everything from uh, analyzing the topography to looking at the uh, um, the weather conditions, looking at the uh, different uh, cycles that might be running through the area, um, analyzing what kind of uh, lift you're going to get uh, with the density altitude, um, crunching every single number that you can for the necessary glide ratios, the impact zones, um, looking at your current performance on your wingsuit so like i mean i can go on and on and on but you get the picture like some of them you just look at you know windy and go hey let's go and some of them you're spending hours on a computer if not days trying to analyze everything that you can yeah and is there any specific like tool that you use most often to uh in your planning you know uh like google earth or uh weather app or anything like that yeah, uh, so Google Earth is a great one. It can actually um, measure out distances and glide ratios for you if you use it properly. Um, a uh, 
A laser is also another good tool that I think every base jumper should have, a laser rangefinder, and one that can do, you know, thousands of yards so that you can actually check out the trigonometry on certain impact zones and glide ratios without having to uh, spend too much time and effort. Um, and when I say trigonometry, like some of these things actually do that for you. So, you know, you just download an app on your phone, shoot a laser uh, at a, an object that's at some unknown distance at some unknown angle, and it'll give you everything about it. You know, distance to impact, distance to target, uh, angles involved, the whole nine yards. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating, the stuff that people can come up with. I know that there's... A few years ago, I saw an app, um, and there's no way that this got approved by the military, but it was a way to basically take your smartphone and it, it you could use it as a scope uh, attached to your rifle, and it would do a lot of those things for you. It, it would basically read all of the, the weather, it would read um, the drop, you know, the Coriolis effect, all these things. It's, it's, it's incredible, and so I'm always amazed at um, the ways technology can really enhance some of the things that we do. Um, you know, so base jumping itself has become a lot more popular over the years and, you know, whether or not it's specifically because of things like GoPro or YouTube, um, it's definitely out there. Um, where do you feel like the trajectory of base jumping as a sport is going? Is it going, is it just going to keep growing in popularity? Do you think, or is it just, has it already seen its peak? That's difficult to say. I don't think it has a unified enough culture to really project in the future. Uh, once that happens, then yeah, it might take off. I don't think that we've hit any kind of uh, cap or critical mass or anything like that. Um, relatively speaking to other, uh, other extreme sports, it's, it's, not very, it's not very popular. I mean, we're talking about like 2,000 active base jumpers worldwide. You know, that's not much. So uh, does it have room for growth? Absolutely. Is it going to continue to grow? Probably uh, because of the access. You know, there are, there are now a dozen, if not more, courses being taught, whereas, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't even talk about it on the drop zone without getting kicked off the drop zone. So is it going to expand? Probably. Um, is it going to continue to popularize and you know, culture? I don't know. That That's really a, a matter of what people are saying with the sport currently. I think uh, the, the line that everyone was towing five, 10 years ago about it being uh, this sport where everyone has a death wish, I think no one wants to hear that crap anymore. You know, so if they're going to tow that same line into 2021, then Probably it's not going to be, you know, as popular. It's not going to be as um, uh, as seen on television, as uh, watched on YouTube. If there's a different angle that somebody can bring to it that's a little more performance art oriented, then absolutely sky's the limit because it's got so much to say that people haven't said yet. And how do you feel about the people that do, you know, I don't know what the right verbi verbiage would be, but how do you you know, do the people that do it just for the gram, um, are you more, do you, would you identify more of a purist in that? Like, Hey, not every jump needs to go on YouTube or needs to go on Instagram. Well, those types of people, I can't really say, like, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to rip anybody down, uh, that I don't know personally. 
I will say that definitely every jump does not need to be filmed. <laughs> I mean, I've got friends that have died with thousands of jumps on camera that they didn't do anything with, you know, and I very much doubt that anyone's doing something so interesting on every jump that it needs to be filmed. Plus, if you add the fact that filming a jump actually adds to the danger of it, you really got to weigh that risk reward analysis when you're doing something that's been done thousands of times and filmed thousands of times. Like, why put that out there? Now, uh, filming base jumps, yes, no. I totally agree with filming base jumps. I subscribe to the um, the statement that Jacques Cousteau made, you know, back when he was doing all this exploration, which is. Uh, if any person, for whatever reason, has the ability to lead an extraordinary life, you have no right to keep it to yourself. And so I've got no qualms against people posting their cool stuff on Instagram. I think, you know, it makes it accessible to the world to see this incredible sport. And if you, and if if I gave you a magic wand and granted you these powers, where would you where would you personally like to see the sport? be in 10 15 years <laughs> uh i mean how can i answer that question where do i want to see the sport i would like to see the sport um speaking for the things that it unequivocally stands for uh, freedom personal responsibility radical self-reliance um and i think the the statement that it makes about life and death is unique and not available anywhere else. And so if base jumping can say those things collectively, that would make me happy. I agree. I, uh, you know, I think it, it does stand for that freedom. It does stand for a lot of, a lot of upbeat and positive things. Um, but you know, for you, you know, not, and not every day is a, is a adrenaline filled day. And it's not this like Red Bull commercial type of day. Um, we all have our slumps. We all have our down days. How do you encounter, how did someone like you who has such experience with like the highs of life encounter those slumps? Well, let me start by saying that like, I don't buck the Bronco, man. I don't like ride the roller coaster. I'm not, I'm not in base jumping to get wild. Uh, the adrenaline aspect of that is detrimental to performance and to my enjoyment of the sport. Like I'm trying to be out on the edge being steady handed. I'm not trying to be uh, so enthusiastically uproarious that I miss the beauty of the actual moment. You know, if you're highly adrenalized, you're in a tunnel vision mindset, you're gonna miss so much of the cool shit that happens when you jump off a cliff if you're in that, in that zone. And that's inherently unsustainable. Like you want to live a, a life that's like high as, you know, high as can be. Eventually you're going to tire yourself out and you're going to hit the floor and it's going to be hard to pick yourself up. So when we separate the marketing that Red Bull puts forward so that they can sell their energy drink and give people a piece of that feeling, you know, you want, you want to feel like a base jumper, drink this stuff, which like all this caffeine and, and all this sugar. And, and you're going to feel the feeling that it's like to be on the edge, bro. Like that's, that is absolutely not me. That is absolutely not a lot of people that are misrepresented by that marketing. Um, so 
first and foremost, uh, I'm trying to be steady-handed on the edge. Uh, secondly, how do I deal with the low moments of life? By simply understanding that they're temporary like everything else. The highs are temporary, the lows are temporary. Now, I paid a ticket to get on the ride, and it was my choice every single day to continue on that ride. You know, there is no high without low. There's no low without high, and there's no life without both. So, like, it's just a question of whether I want to keep living or if I want to check out, cash my ticket, and give it to somebody else and, you know, say good day. And kind of along that same line, you know, let's play make-believe and think that you never got into base jumping. Um, and you know, maybe, yeah, you have the background in, in other extreme sports, but I'd, I'd wager that probably base jumping and skydiving is, is a totally different element than snowboarding, let's say on as the scale, unless, you know, I want to make a really misplaced joke, a misplaced joke about Sonny Bono crashing into a tree, <laughs> but you know, um, Let's play that make-believe and let's, uh, you know, think that, let's, let's assume that you led a life without pursuing the, the space jumping and skydiving. How do you think your life would have turned out without it? Probably similarly, but in a different area. You know, I'm all blessed and cursed with an overactive mind. And so being in the flow experience, being in the flow zone where your present, uh, where everything kind of fades away is, is very enticing to me. And one way to get there is through extreme sports. But there are plenty of people that flow other ways. My, my brother's a concert pianist. And when you see him on the keys, he's in the flow 100%. He's nowhere else. And so where would I have ended up? I don't know. But wherever it was, it would probably be the most extreme version of that place. Yeah. You know, and speaking of flow, I know that it's, it's become quite the, uh, the buzzword over the past year or so, but it is definitely something that is, is real and it is true. Is there anything usually flow state people think comes about randomly and it's just, it happens in this moment where the stars align. But from my understanding and from my own experience, flow state is actually something that you can practice and that you can ritualize. Are you, do you feel the same way? And if so, are you able to actually, is there a methodology to how you find flow in what you do? Absolutely. And this is, I think, something that's, you know, less debated nowadays since, uh, you know, science and psychology has made an effort at studying it empirically. You know, there is data to support uh, the methodology of getting into flow. So, you know, it takes a certain amount of skill. You know, it has a certain amount of risk involved. Uh, There are consequences that you're trying to avoid, but you have the ability to intuitively understand the mechanics and the movements necessary to avoid those consequences fun you know it's something that brings you joy right these are like kind of the um, some of the pieces to the puzzle when it comes to getting into flow experience but uh, flow state is also available in so many other realms i mean there are people that just meditate and get into flow 
and their road into flow is probably a little uh, harder initially. You know, they, they have to train and practice and uh, hone their mind to be able to access that, that state beyond themselves without doing anything physical. Uh, whereas when you're base jumping, you're almost forced into it because you have to be so present in that moment in order to execute the necessary steps to survive. Right. You can't be thinking about uh, all the groceries you need to be picking up from the store later or, you know, whatever the, the car payment that's going to be due next month when you're racing, you know, racing down a line and you're trying to trying to make sure you're not hitting every single tree or any tree uh, in, in that moment. Um, is there anything in particular, though, that you do personally uh, to to get into flow state? Do you, you know, for me, before a jump, let's say, um, before a skydive, I have a ritual where whenever we hit 9,000 feet, um, you know, I've got my helmet on the entire plane right up, but uh, at 9,000 feet, I buckle that chin strap and I pull it tight. I rub my, this... <laughs> I rub the side of my head like a genie lamp um, on the side of my helmet three times, and then I give it three knocks, and then I take three deep breaths. And it's just that, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Um, and, and that's a ritual that, that at least helps me keep calm before I jump. Do you have any kind of ritual like that before you jump? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll preface this by saying that it is the exact same way that I sink into flow state in any realm that I might experience it, be it meditation or at a concert or doing extreme sports. Um, and it's just to start to notice the fine details in the world around me. So what does the grass look like? What color green is it? How many shades of that green are there? How is the wind whistling through the trees? Every sense that I have starting to pick up all the spine detail that you might not even try and be aware of if you were, you know, moving through your day to day. And do you feel like that helps you remember more? Because one, I guess, little trick that I've developed over the years, because we're all, no, I've never met anybody who can claim that to be really good at names, at remembering names. Everyone hides behind the, oh, I'm really good with faces. I'm terrible with names. I just want to meet one person one day who's like, no, I fucking kill names. I never forget them. <laughs> but for me, what I, what I will try to do is kind of more that mindfulness when I meet somebody and I try to do the, you know, I, I look, you know, I peer into their eyes, I peer into their soul. And I try and remember the color, the very vivid color of their eyes for you though, because of you're in that and in, in the fluency and you have that mindfulness, do you feel like that allows you to remember, even though, you know, you're at thousands of jumps. So, but are you able to remember more vividly all the details of a jump? Sometimes, but the idea is to shut off memory entirely. You know, memory is, uh, is something that takes, uh, cognitive, cognitive energy. All right, and so what I'm really trying to do is refocus all of my cognitive ability into the present moment, which the fine detail is there, right? And that's, that's the thing that can start to fill up that uh, conscious mind. And then everything else that I'm doing should be intuitive at that point. And so uh, it's a, a forced move into the present moment. 
Now, later on, once the thing has happened, recalling that is possible, but it takes substantial effort to like pull up what might have been imprinted on your mind at the time. And I'll say that it might not exactly match with reality because, you know, in those present moments, you can only focus on so much. And so uh, the reality to somebody might be, oh, you flew really fast by that tree. You know, the reality to me in that moment was, wow, that like pine needle on that tree was really <laughs> green. <laughs> Did you see that chipmunk eating that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That was wild, man. <laughs> Did you see that chipmunk fall off that branch? No, I saw you rip by that branch at 200 miles an hour, though. Wow. It didn't feel fast at all to me. <laughs> yeah. It, it's absolutely amazing how two people can, can technically observe the same action or the same moment, but perceive it on totally different ends of the spectrum. And one thing, you know, I'm definitely not as, is, I, I have no business even talking psychology to be, I feel like at times, but one thing that always fascinates, fascinates me is just how fallible our memories are. And, and because of scenarios like that, because you, you might be in this adrenaline filled moment and your brain shuts down because it doesn't need to be thinking about your grocery list or, or the car payments. It needs to be focused on the moment. Uh, and so I think that, um, yeah, I, I, that's one of the many, many, many things that attracts me to skydiving is just the, uh, the mental circus it'll put me through sometimes. Well, I have one last question for you um, because, you know, you've been you've been absolutely generous with your time and your honesty, and I really appreciate it. And um, but one the this parting question I want to leave with you, leave you with is is a little game called first, last, best, worst. Um, and I want you <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want you to you know we're talking about base jumping, we're talking about skydiving. Um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of leeway with it, but. Yeah, I would love to maybe if you wanted to pick out one of the four, or if you were able to do all four, that'd be that'd be absolutely wonderful. Of uh, as it relates to base jumping, maybe so. First, last, best, worst, um, in no particular order. Well, first base jump was easy. Um, that was at Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, doing a static line jump that. I uh, was uh, generously done by my climbing partner, Ian. Um, it was uh, a moment of breaking through to being a free human, uh, you know, overriding all of the, uh, all of the natural human elements that keep you from doing the things that you might want to do. And in that moment, I wanted to jump off a bridge. And after that moment, I could jump off bridges and do anything that might put my body in harm's way. And so I increased my freedom, you know, 10,000 fold there. Uh, let's see. Last jump. Uh, the last jump I did was actually in the first uh, seconds of the new year on the West Coast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my childhood friend and I, uh, Mike Nador, went and jumped uh, an antenna. Uh, out here in Southern California, just as uh, the uh, tone struck midnight. <laughs> it was wild, too. Like, every all these fireworks were going off all over the city. Uh, and uh, we were 
well lit up with the uh, full moon that was just uh, waning at that point and beautiful conditions. You can't tell a story like that and not expect <laughs> me to want to, you know, more, know more about that. that's, that's awesome. Uh, what a, <laughs> what a way to both give the finger to 2020 and bring in 2021. That is such a cool story, man. But boom, um, best and worst jumps. That's, that's a difficult. I mean, worst jump, worst jump. I, I, I could, I could probably put a finger on worst jump. Worst jump was a, a solo jump that I did uh, in Kuala Lumpur off of uh, KL Tower, and uh, it was just a, you know, it was a nothing jump that I really didn't need to do, but I felt like, hey, why not? I'm here. I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> and I ended up, uh, I ended up. Um, hooking in the turn a little too deep. Uh, the wind was just wasn't great for, you know, it was marginal conditions and I uh, ended up jamming up my knee on the, uh, on the landing instead of uh, just PLFing out of it. Uh, so it was the only, it was, you know, minor injury, but the only injury that I had sustained in base jumping and it was for a human error. So like, man, it was just all told, there was just nothing great about it. You know, it wasn't spectacular. It wasn't unique. It didn't need to be done at all and it ended in you know an embarrassing injury so worst jump um best jump that's so tough that's so tough there are so many good jumps yeah i mean i'm trying to just wrap my head around the the best jump which i would regard as the most perfect you know and what is perfection right like in base jumping in a more binary sense, it's the one that you execute to perfection, the one that uh, was most difficult with least mistakes. And so what is the most perfect jump that I've done? Hmm. The ones that come to mind are uh, uh, the two way that I did with Ian off of uh, the Perrine Bridge uh, in uh, Elmo and Cookie Monster suits. <laughs> which no one had free fallen really a, like done a free fall with a costume that large before. And not only did we free fall it, but we free fell it on a two way, both doing aerials and filming it at the same time. Uh, and so there was a lot of room for error, uh, but we nailed it perfectly. Um, let's see another perfect one uh, at the bridge. Uh, I did this, um, uh, this trap door jump and perfection there was just being still no matter when you got trap doored because it was going to be a surprise. And uh, I didn't know exactly how I was going to react to the surprise, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that I was relaxed and calm and dead silent on my you know body mechanics. And so that one was a, a really excellent jump. Um, Let's see, jumping out of a, a sequoia, we jumped out of this uh, 1200 foot sequoia tree in the middle of, you know, a, a forest. I uh, did that one with uh, Will Kiddo and Johnny Corthius and Matt Lodge, all excellent, amazing, incredible base jumpers. And uh, that one had a lot of risk involved and a lot of different uh, elements that needed to line up perfectly with perfect execution in order for it to work out. And that one did. so. 
that's also high on my list. I mean, man, I could go on forever on these. Like uh, terrain flying through uh, a town in uh, in France. Uh, Ian and I found we we were on a hunt to fly through a town, you know. And in France, there are all these like vineyards and little towns that are just built into the hillsides of these you know monster you know, mountains. So we finally found one um, on a jump called uh, Croix de Fer, uh, and <laughs> So we were able to fly through what is basically a city street. <laughs> so that was that was pretty epic and required a whole lot of perfection in order to pull that one off. Oh man, I am uh, I am quite jealous uh, of all of those. And um, but it, Matt, thank you so so much um, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, again, you know I really want to appreciate just your. Your just overall optimistic attitude and your truthfulness and your candidness and willing to share kind of, you know, some very personal side of your story with me and whoever else is listening. It's, it's actually, it's just been such a pleasure. No doubt, man. Thanks for having me on and thanks for asking me all these questions. I, I think they're really important to, to continue to continually ask everybody. And while I have a perspective on it, I'm, uh, hugely interested to see where you go with this podcast and who you bring on next to answer these these questions and see what you get out of you know their life stories. You know all of the all the different stuff that I've gone through is meaningless if it's not shared. So thanks for the opportunity to share it with everybody. All right, y'all. That's it for this episode of the It Matters to Me podcast with my friend and guest Matt Blank. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the documentary When We Were Knights, as well as anything else we talked about. The film really is such a heartfelt and beautiful piece that really does make you take a moment to reflect after watching it. Also, if you have a minute and you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review. It really helps out. There's some really fascinating guests in the pipeline that I can't wait to share with you all, and if there's someone you think I should have on the show, please let me know by writing an email to adam at itmatterstomepodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and until the next one, this is Adam Casey signing off.